no driving gloves. We're a combination of gearheads. John, the instigator. Derek, the conservator. Will, the builder. Sean, the racer. And maybe a guest. Invite you to listen while they sit down, have a drink, and discuss cars. More subscribe to the podcast with no driving gloves. Time now for the ride. Hey, Mr. Derek, what's happening tonight? Uh, not a lot, John. How are you doing? Oh, kind of busy as snot. I wish some things were, well, I would say I wish some things are car-related, but some things are car-related. I'm still contemplating over that CRX I talked about last week. I found out it's a Gen 2 car. It's a DX. It's an automatic. It runs. It drives. Uh, Unfortunately, the doors are taken off of it. Half the interior is stripped out of it. The front fenders are off. The nose is off. The radiator's out. The core support's out. And... I don't have an indoor place to put it, and I don't really want to devote. I don't want to devote a weekend to putting it back together, and I don't have a weekend in the in my sights that I could put, you know, really take off to put it back together. So I'm I'm in a little dilemma on it. You know, I really don't want an automatic DRX or automatic DX CRX. It's probably the least desirable one in my book, but. It would be having a CRX, and I could knock around in it for a while, and I'm sure I could sell it for, you know, grand, 1500 bucks, and move on up in the CRX realms. I mean, I, I was going to say, it was it was all sounding good with, with free being the cost until you said automatic transmission, and then it was like, ah. Well, see, nah, I, I, I am... Pay me, pay me to take it. I have become one of the proponents of automatic transmissions. I can agree with them. I can understand their use. I think I honestly think they're a superior transmission to um, to a, to a manual in the mo- most modern a CRX DX with an automatic. No, that's a horrible thing. An automatic anything from ni- 1985 is a horrible you know car. But the way automatics are now today, with the way they shift and things like that, I think they're superior. Um, and I mean, if oh, you're yeah, yeah, I agree, I agree. Yeah, I was just I, my my thing is you know vintage cars, classic cars, whatever realm you want to put them in. I, I prefer them to be stick shift. It's just a, a a little more fun. Well, I think it goes back to being a toy. You know, of course, I'm not going to race it, so I'm good with that. Having the manual is yeah fun because it's a toy, and you're supposed you know to me that's enjoying it. But I also find as I'm getting older and I encounter more and more traffic. I get a little impatient. You know, that's originally how No Driving Gloves, the name, was created. I had created the name about 2005, 2006 for a blog, and it was going to be me bitching about the things automotive that uh, irritated me, whether it was traffic or the way people were parking or, you know, the idiot driver that did this or the manufacturer that did something stupid like added fender flares to a Challenger and called it a wide body. I just don't, Ralph. If you come on the show, you can explain that thinking. But oh, ouch. <laughs> well, the the good thing though is is that you've what you've just covered and what you've just said in the nearly four years we've been doing this podcast, we've covered most of that. I mean, we've complained about traffic, we've complained about people's driving, we've complained about all of that on the show, and we can continue to for the next however many years this goes on. But I, I will back up and say the. 
the manual transmission to me in older cars, and I think we've talked about this on the show. I'm almost sure we've talked about it on the show before. It is the true experience of driving an automobile, having to having to work a throttle, a clutch, and a brake, and shift gears, do everything almost mechanically is a it to me is the driving experience and it's even better when you have an early 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 car where you have to adjust the spark and uh throttle and everything as you're going to keep the car from just dying on the side of the road i'll go with you there there is an enjoyment uh with that when i was back at barbers and we had uh, acquired two or three model t's within a couple of weeks and we had that one with all the um uh what was louis chevrolet's um, company that built high performance parts for Model T's. Um, I want to say Ford. Frontenac, huh? Frontenac. Yeah, I mean we had one that had every Frontenac part on it, including the badges and that. And that sucker was fun. Um, you know, for a T, I mean it it moved. It I you know probably wasn't doing more than forty if, at best. You know, you're still doing wooden spoke wheels and that. But it was a it was a fun. It was actually a Model T pickup, but it was actually a fun roadster pickup to drive around. And It was a nice truck. I remember seeing it. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed playing with that one. And then, of course, we had a standard one that we had acquired. And then, of course, we had the uh, 15 Touring that had been there for years. And then, actually, I think, well, when I left, they had four Ts because then they had acquired a, um, oh, God, a, what do, you, what do you call the stupid wooden things that were like a station wagon bus? I can't think of the term. Woody? Uh, well, the it's a, a, a depot hack. Yeah, a depot hack. They bought the depot hack that I think Dan Gurney owned. No, Carol Shelby owned it. It was actually out of the Shelby collection. And that was one of those things that just because somebody owns it, it might not be as what you think it is. No, no I'm exactly. always fearful of buying a museum car because usually they're not run or properly cared for. Yeah, it's out of a museum. It sounds cool, but buyer beware. Not sure how to, I'm never sure how to react to that because, you know, my philosophy on museum cars is to take care of them a lot differently than that. So, (laughs) yeah. And, but I'm going to say, I don't want to insult your museum, but there's always a car or two in a museum, no matter what, that's never going to get run. That's never going to get, you know, potentially treated right. Wasn't necessarily put up right. While you pay tons of attention to everything in your collection, I, I can't remember or don't know, actually, I can't let alone remember. I never knew how many cars are in your collection. But even at the Barber Museum that uses cars and enjoys their cars and they still have cars that have not run or moved in years. And they're just, you know, you think they're going to be great cars. I mean, we had the... uh uh, 90ZR1 with uh, it's got 17 or 19 miles on it and about 5 or 6 years ago we had one of the techs go completely through that car to make it run and drive and poten- potentially sell it and he did some stupid stuff like the fuel filler neck wasn't in place so he ran some wood screws through the car to hold it in place <laughs> original GM pieces so I mean there's a car that, that now, after they did all that work, they also did it with the 928S4 that's there. They haven't moved. They haven't moved in six or eight years. They're museum cars that are going to need to be gone through. And 
it's you know it's unfortunate. Yeah, everything should be driven and drove and operated and cared for, but I mean, even when I've owned two or three cars, it's sometimes hard to do that. When I owned 13, it was impossible to do that, and that's why I don't own 13 cars anymore. Financial needs and such such aside, it I, it was just work to keep them insured and registered, let alone everything yep. else that goes with them. Mm-hmm. I was going to jump to, we talked a couple of weeks ago about the uh, the episode I called Fire um, and, and Fires and Devastation. And this is just kind of a reminder thing because, unfortunately, the house that's about six or seven doors down from us caught fire last night. The, the husband or the father was out in the garage, and he's got a couple of toy cars, and he was working on a car, and it backfired and caught his garage on fire. You know, the house doesn't look like a total loss. I'm sure there's smoke damage in that, but it's... It looks mainly confined to the garage, and I mean the roof's still intact and things. Garage doors all melted to the ground, and the garage is pretty well charred. But I just wanted to put out a you know a PSA or you know a reminder to everybody when you're working in your garage, be sure to have that fire extinguisher nearby in that because you know you know it's an unfortunate thing, and you know I you know I don't know what's worse, a fire or a flood or whatever with your home, but it's just you know. And when it's something that, you know, you created or the problem, I, I just, you know, I, f- I feel bad for them. And as anti-compassionate as I am, my heart goes out to them. And, you know, I've offered to help them in any way I can. So yeah, it's just a reminder about fire. What depressing news or exciting news is is on your, your end? Uh, you were talking about maybe uh, expanding your knowledge before the show. <laughs> So the family went up to we we took the kids back to Ohio this weekend and uh, had some family birthday stuff going on on the wife's side of the family. And then uh, just kind of drove around as you do with kids to let them take their nap and in the car seats and the car moving. And one of the two kids uh, tends to do pretty well with that. Usually he's uh, out before we hit the end of a driveway. So um, that is awesome. But in our driving about, uh, we stumbled through a a small town in in Northeast Ohio called Kinsman, Ohio. And uh, turned out there was an old, actually, according to the gentleman that runs it, it is the oldest running general store in the state of Ohio. And uh, he's added kind of like antique to- store stuff and and book uh books to the to the general store and bought up more of the buildings in the the block around you know and we just decided to go in and peruse the kids woke up and so we we kind of popped in and it's dangerous for me to go into a bookstore because I usually, especially an antique bookstore or a vintage bookstore, because I usually find the automotive section. And sure enough, they had a small automotive section. And as I think we've talked about on the, the show a few times before, there are some books, you know, there's always good books out there. And whether, you know, I have a, a reference library, essentially, of books that are specifically on uh, you know, maintenance, repair, uh, you know, the original, I mean, books from the early 1900s related to repairing early automobiles. But I also appreciate the automotive history side of things and really transportation history. 
So I wound up walking out with five new books. And uh, fitting for this week, I think, is uh, one that I read back in college. And I found a, a copy on the, the shelf, and I had to pick it up. It's called Taking the Wheel, Women and the Coming of the Motor Age. And, of course, we're recording on March 9th, the day after International Women's Day. And a fantastic book. I recall uh, portions of it from reading it back in college. And uh, just a book I wanted to pick up and read again and, and continue my, obviously, knowledge base of, of transportation history. So. I always recommend a good good automotive history book. Were those brand new books or obviously or I'm assuming they're vintage public, you know, antique books or from a few years back cuz I just can't see a publisher putting out things like that now, but you never know. No, oh yeah, these are these are these are vintage books. Let's see. Where is Okay, so this one, the the taking the wheel I just um, referenced uh, published by the Free New York uh, Free Press, uh, 1991. Actually, sorry, updated. Uh, last update is 1992. And the other one I was showing John before the show called Wagon, Chariot, and Carriage, Symbol and Status in the History of Transport. I'm going to guess this one's even older, John. Mm. I am wrong. Also 1992. But yeah, I mean, there, I mean, I could go dig through the rest of my books. I mean, there are books, like I said, that are published in the, I've got them from the early 1900s all the way up. And these things, they're out of publication and you're not going to find them on Kindle or on any of the, I don't know what other book apps are out there, but you know, they're just, they're not popular. So they're not going to be out there. And see, I wonder, and I don't know if you've ever explored and I've, I've gotten some things and it's gotten much better since I think the last time I poked around, but the Google library, I'm finding there or I found there's tremendous information out there because people have basically scanned books and, you know, uploaded them. And it's, it'd be somebody like you who scans your book collection and puts them up there and then they're available on, you know, Google books until I guess some publisher comes and tells them, eh, we don't like that. Take it down. But you're dealing with books that are probably out of copyright, at least, and probably haven't had the copyrights renewed because, you know, I know public domain, I think it's 1926 right now. Yes. But, but if it's, you know, from the 60s and it hasn't had the copyright uh, renewed, I believe it's it's free, free game, too. But don't take me on that. I'm not an attorney. Uh, copyright yeah. and licensing is... A whole ball of wax, and if you spend time on podcasting forums like me, fair use is not a law, it's a defense. You use it after you've been accused of plagiarizing Mm -hmm. or stealing. And if you're in the nonprofit education world, it's a little easier to use that fair use uh, uh, defense. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's just, I guess, a hobby. You know, one of my automotive hobbies is these books, and I feel like I can never never read enough and never learn enough uh, if you know if i'm going to be who i am be a historian in the automotive transportation realm i know right now you know i i focus primarily on corvette but as i think we've talked about on this show and i talk about regularly in my any of the sessions i or seminars or anything where i'm talking and i'm talking about corvette i i guess i'm sometimes the um 
the person who shocks uh, some people because I'm the type of person that if we're going to talk about Corvette, we're going to talk about a lot of other cars because any automobile has connections to almost every part of automotive history. The way automobiles have, have grown, the future of the automobile, the past of the automobile, they're all intertwined. There's There's no, oh, Corvette is this little world over here and it's not impacted by anything. You know, it's, I'm sorry, it was impacted by the MGs, uh, the British sports cars, the MG T series, the TA, TB, TC, TD. TD was a little late, so let's stay with the ABC. You know, it's it's impacted by the Jaguars. It's impacted by the Crosley Hotshots, the Nash Healy's. And after it's in production, it's impacted by the Ford Thunderbird. It's impacted by the Dodge Viper when the Dodge Viper comes out. And, you know, you cannot tell the whole story of a car without a lot of other transportation history involved and uh, development of those things. So, you know, that's just part of what I do. And I mean, you know, you look back and I, I think I've ranted about it on the show before. And I say rant because it's usually something boring that no one wants to listen to. But everything in the automotive realm right now, I mean, until we start major changes, a majority of it tracks back all the way to the Romans. So the way our roads are built, the way the the width, the track of an automobile is the width of two horses side by side, uh, which Romans built their roads around. You know, it's, it's all, to me, it's all part of this automotive world I live in. Let me ask, because you said something there that was interesting, and I, I'm one who believes, that, you know, when you wake up in the morning, you should at least learn one new thing. Say, so, ironically, today I taught somebody earlier today um, in a retail store or something new, and then just this evening, probably an hour before we started to record, the youngest in the household was having trouble with controllers for his uh, Oculus, and he couldn't, you know, he put new batteries in it and put different batteries, and it wasn't working, and he put the battery in upside down. So, you know, I was able to teach him, you know, it's, it's simple, but, you know, keep in mind, he's 11 years old, that the little springy end is where the flat end of the battery goes, and you know, 99% of the time, that's the way it's going to work. And, you know, it's, there's two little things I taught people today, which I enjoy. And they both, to me, they both, two different individuals learned something today. So their days were productive. Was any of your decision to take, say, the job at the Corvette Museum was because of the ability it was going to give you to explore this unknown territory because, yeah, with the Crawfords, you worked with some modern automobiles. And with Henry Ford, you worked with some modern automobiles. But you've always been into the vintage stuff, and that's where you're at. Where jumping into Corvettes, you're not going too much before 1953, except when you're doing the, you know, doing some of the comparisons on what created the Corvette. Was the ability to learn a whole new aspect of the automotive world? I mean, Corvettes, fiberglass, sports cars... General Motors, new or interesting? Was that was that thirst for knowledge any part of that decision, or is that just kind of a added benefit that happened that wasn't even considered when taking the job? No, no, I think it was it was definitely part of it. I mean, it, and I guess to me, taking a, a new job, there should be some challenges in that job. You know, you it's for me, it's a way to grow. 
uh, you know, if I, if I took a job that I was like, this is going to be easy. Why do I want that? Yeah. I, I, for me, that's just not what I, what I look for. And, you know, remember John, you know, and I know you know this about me, uh, you know, Corvette wasn't really that necessarily new. Let's call it to me. I mean, I grew up around him with my dad restoring, you know, he, he was GM fiberglass guy. He took all the classes at tech center so he could work on them at the body shops. And we restored them regularly at the shop at home for his, you know, customers and friends. And I grew up in GM world. I mean, my dad was a GM, you know, dealership employee, body man. So GM history, I, you know, my mom's side of the family had GM employees in it, uh, AC Delco side, things like that. So I knew, I knew that part of history. I, you know, it was actually kind of, you know, my dad razzed me more when I started working at Henry Ford Museum because of the Ford connection and had had grown up more GM side of things. And and then he kind of gave me a hard time when I went to the Corvette Museum. He said, ah, you're finally coming back to GM, huh? Um, <laughs> so, but I think it was, and it was actually one of the things I talked about in my interview process of of the, you know, at the Corvette museum when I was looking at the job and, you know, they had asked, you know, one of the questions posed was what, you know, what are the challenges you see or the difficulties you see behind us being a single, uh, single make museum, not just a single Mark. I mean, this isn't just Chevrolet. It's down to a single make of automobile. You're looking at Corvette and I I remember my answer to that, which was there apps, there isn't a, it really a challenge or a difficulty in it. There's missed opportunities that I see at the museum. When I walked through and did my, my initial tours and things of the museum, there wasn't a single car that wasn't a Corvette on that museum floor. They were not telling the whole story. They weren't branching out into, you know, well, Corvette dish didn't show up one day. You know, Harley Earl didn't just walk into the styling studio and go, Hey guys, I got this idea for an American sports car. It's called Corvette. Here's the design. Let's go. You know, it wasn't just there. I bet he walked. That's not what Harley Earl would say. Harley Earl would say, that's how it happened. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's what I mean. That's, that's how it happened. And I can see him saying that, but I'm sure there were many nights sitting at home over, you know, his, I'm going to say Mad Men, even though it's 20 years too late, um, having a scotch and reading stuff in the newspaper and the car magazines going, you know, we need to make something like this and then go in and take credit for walking in. But that's well, you have to me- remember, though, the whole the whole most of Corvette was born at Watkins Glen uh, when he was pacing the races and, and watching the races in the Buick LeSabre mm-hmm. concept car. He was already headed for a, a sports car of some kind. He was already had it in mind. Uh, you know, he was showing off the LeSabre at Watkins Glen. If I remember, I think he paced one or two of the races. I, I Don't quote me on that. I don't remember. If you ever get a chance to see the Buick LeSabre in person or look it up online, look at the interior. The interior cockpit of the LeSabre, there are clear cues in the interior cockpit of the 1953-54 Corvettes. Um, very similar layouts, things, because that's the car Harley was sitting in when he started thinking about this. And he was watching MGs race by, TAs, TBs, all of them, all the you know ones that were being imported over. I mean, there were in those first Watkins Glen races, races, 
I mean, there were Mercedes brought over running and Harley was sitting there going, we're missing the mark. There's a bunch of American kids running European sports cars around an American racetrack. What's wrong here? And that's where he starts birthing this idea of Corvette. That's one of the reasons that the first gallery you walk into at the Corvette Museum, yes, there's a 53 Corvette. It's a cutaway, you know, cutaway Corvette showing half the cars, you know, inner workings and half of the outer body shell. See, there's a Crosley hotshot and there's a, um, the world's first fiberglass car, the Stelt Y46. And those cars are going to change over time. You know, we're already talking to uh, two people that have two very, very significant Jaguar XK120s that were race prepped that are probably going to come in maybe the end of this year or so and be on exhibit where the MG is to talk about the Jaguar impact. Again, going back to it, it was the challenge of it. It was the the challenge, and yes, the learning. I mean, I didn't know every single detail of Corvette history. I still don't. I still read books on Corvette history and learn something new every day. You got to remember, Corvette's one of the longest running cars um, there currently are. I mean, we're sixty eight years into production, uh, with only one year not actually having a production version that went out to the public. There are a ton of stories. There are a tons of information that not even probably the most savviest Corvette historian knows, uh, you know, and, and I'm not saying that to challenge anyone. I'm just saying that to, you know, say that we all learn different aspects of history and interpret them in certain ways. That's, that's the thing with history. It's interpreted, you know, unless you lived it, unless you were there, unless you're Zoroarchus Duntov, or one of the guys that worked right next to him, or if you're, you know, Taj Jukter, the current chief engineer, all the stories from behind the scenes don't get told. You know, that's part of the job of, of being a curator and a historian is trying to find them. We'll probably never know all of them. Did I rant there long enough? <laughs> you, you talked long enough for me to pull up a picture of that 1951 Buick LeSabre and, you know, kind of show that. I should try to find a cross you know, photo, but, you know, it, looking at it through this photo, it's kind of got, it's got the sloping-ish, you know, trunk lid. It's got the coves in the side. I mean, there are a lot of the uh, Corvette styling cues in it. Well, and the biggest thing to notice on the, the LeSabre and the Buick XP300, this is the famed Harley, Harley Earl wraparound windshield. And only the LeSabre, and XP300 concept cars, dream cars, had the wraparound windshield. The first production automobile to come out of GM with that is the Corvette. So, you know, right there, you also have that cue of the wraparound windshield. I was trying to think of the uh, XP300. I think I saw that car up uh, at the Meadowbrook Concours, and I think I almost saw it get hit by a falling tree <laughs> so sounds about right <laughs> yeah and that car is at the uh alfred p sloan museum in flint michigan actually when i i did my internship there i had a chance to work a little bit on the car and and actually got to ride in it um that was pretty awesome well, at some point here we'll get a picture of it up here we're doing some testing on the streaming etc but just for those audio mm -hmm. listeners is wondering what some of these odd things are, but 
we'll just stop sharing the screen and we'll get back to our audio podcast. Nah, that's that's right. what because that's what we do. Well, and you know, I, I it's interesting that you brought that up. The this question about you know jobs and things like that, John. Because actually, on my drive back from Ohio uh, on Sunday, it's it's about an eight hour drive with two kids that are under two years old. It's about a ten to eleven hour drive. So you get a lot of time to think. Um, the kids fall asleep. The wife falls asleep in the passenger seat. You can't fall asleep because you're driving. That'd be bad. Cruise control only works so much. I, you know that's. Talk be to my ex-wife people. about me sleeping uh, and driving. <laughs> I used to do it all the time. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it gave me time to think, and, and I don't know, my mind wanders. And people, I, I guess there's been a few times during my, you know, being introduced at, at some, you know, conference or something where, uh, you know, somebody gives my bio an introduction and says something about turning, you know, a hobby into a, a career. And, you know, that whole old saying that if you, you turn a, a hobby into a career, you never work a day in your life, things like that. I don't, I don't like that one. I, I don't, I actually think if you turn a hobby into a job, uh, it's, it, it almost ruins uh, your, you know, hobby. somebody gives uh, my bio. You know, it's, it's just, you do it every day of at work. You don't want to come home and do it again. And my job is quite a bit different from my hobby of working on cars. I mean, even the conservation world is, is quite a bit different. Yes. Did I, did I work on cars and get them running at jobs I've had? Yes, I, I have because I have the knowledge and the skill to do that. Uh, but it's not what I do every day in and out. And I don't come home and go, Oh God, I don't want to touch a car. You know, I do a lot of history. I do a lot of other treatment type work on conservation, things like that. But I guess rather to me, one of the things I got thinking about, and I think there's versions of this, but, you know, I think you have to, and and not everybody, I'm, I'm not saying that this is, you know, for everyone, but I think for me, it's turning a, a passion into a profession because that passion for me, you know, my passion of automotive history and transportation history in general brings a certain drive to my profession and wanting to be the most professional person I can be in my career because it's something I'm so passionate about and and things like that. So even in that, I think it 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 was part of the decision to come to the Corvette Museum, even though maybe it's not exactly what my hobby is at home, and which is antique cars. And yes, I mean, my knowledge base is heavily laid in the antique cars, but it's also just automotive history in general is a passion and it's part of my profession and career. It's, it's what drives me. It's, it's what makes me keep moving. Yeah. See, I do the same thing, and that's why I kind of went with that question to you. Is a lot of people know I'm into a lot of things. You know, I've talked about it quite often on the shows. I have a passion for cars, and it paid the bills literally from the time I was about 23 till I was four. I left the museum when I was 47, um, and pretty much worked in cars exclusively for those 25 years or so. Um, I enjoyed it. I did get burnout on it, and that was making my hobby my job and you've done a nice job of keeping your you know while you're still working on cars you're working on different cars than what you go home to and and that is a completely different world but 
when I got to the museum, I was a Lotus guy and absolutely everything Lotus. And I mean, I had walls in my house in Virginia painted, you know, green and gold that were color matched to the, you know, Lotus logos and things like that to the point now that I'm selling off a lot of my Lotus collection. I'm just burnt out on it. I'm finally, after three years of being out of the museum, beginning to enjoy cars again. And that's why that CRX I talked to about earlier was potentially a contender for coming back in because it's not a huge expense and that. But with, you know, cigars, I enjoyed cigars, but I wanted to know more. So I picked that up as a career because there's no way you can learn more about cigars than to do that. And, you know, podcasting, it, it's a fun hobby and all of that. And I realize I fall prey to gear acquisition and that. And now it's become my job. So I'm definitely guilty and a prime example of what you say, you know, don't do your hobby for a living. But I've, I've had a pretty pretty good time at it. And, you know, I find it a great way to get paid to learn about your hobby. It's just unfortunate at some point. And I began to realize this because in about 07, I got out of car restoration for a year. And that's when I, you know, went and did the Titanic stuff and the Saturn V stuff and went into museum conservation. And it slid me into a museum position back into cars. And I thought taking a year off, I was fine. Well, guess what? I Ten years later, I was wrong. It's that thirst for knowledge. And I think, you know, you and I are kind of known as the academics on the show. That's not an insult to Will or um, Sean. We just kind of get a little bit more um, dry and academic and teaching or whatever you want to call professorish in our conversations. I think we've gotten better about lightening them up. But it's just we, you and I both, you know, we're completely different people, but we both have that same intrinsic thing of enjoying history and enjoying uh, thirst for knowledge and I, like I said, I'm I'm finally having fun. I made a post on Facebook the other day that a friend of mine posted a picture of a Ferrari, and I had no clue what it was. And I had to go to Ferrari's website because it's a current model, and it was the SF90. I was aware of the Rosa. Hadn't seen a picture of one. And I was aware of the 812. But other than that, anything in Ferrari's lineup, that's how far away from cars I've gotten the last couple of years. And I said to myself, do I really need to be doing a car podcast? Once I you know, realized that, and the day before, I had three consecutive years on the same day of posting where, this, this sounds bad, you know, there was ex-girlfriend autocrossing, the following year I was rally crossing, and then the following year I put an ex-girl, a different ex-girlfriend into a race car for the first time. So I was at a racetrack three years in a row and, you know, same thing. And a really good friend of mine, she started her racing hobby that same same day, that same, and uh, she's still avidly racing. Really nice girl. I would like to get her on the podcast at some point. You know, and then to, and I'm sitting there the following day, and I'm not into cars. and But I'm finding my way back, and this podcast does help me relive some of that and have fun with it because it gets to be done on my own terms. I don't know where we're going with that, but you know, definitely knowledge and learning, etc., and enjoying. Well, I mean, I still think the greatest question in transportation and the greatest conundrum in transportation history 
is not a question of where the swallow grips the coconut, but rather the fact that it is a simple question of weight ratios. Yeah, see, we, we talked about academics in my last little uh, <laughs> diatribe. I don't want to think that hard. You know, I, I'm sitting but here. But we think- also talked about making it light. Yes. And obviously you're not getting the movie reference. Um, no. Can we still watch the movie or is it? A- <laughs> I believe so. I believe so. Yes, it's it's but I believe it's the opening scene from Monty Python and the search for the Holy Grail. Uh, there you go. I'm not British humor. I don't know. Oh, I've okay, never well. been able to watch Monty Python. I've never been able to about the only British show that I've ever been able really to do was Doctor Who. And that was probably more for Rose Tyler than anything else. So, oh, see, in the only Doctor Who series I've been able to, or, or you know, run of the Doctor Who series that I've been able to watch um, was the David Tennant years. Yeah, see, well, the David Tennant, I can't remember. He, I think he was with Rose. I can't remember. Yeah, or yeah, Rose he, was in those. Yep. And I will also say Amy Pond because I, I have a thing for Amy redheads, there, yeah. and you know that's, mm. you know, Zara's a redhead, but I have, for some reason I have a thing for redheads. And the kind of the fantasies probably that dyed blonde hair girl. I've, I've, I was going to say, wasn't Rose the blonde, though? Yeah, she was the, I can't think of what her real name was. I can't think of what either one of them's real name was. But I, you know, and I can't keep the doctor straight because I'm more interested in the sidekicks. <laughs> and I mean, here's the thing. Even Doctor Who, I mean, it's transportation related because you got to figure out how he gets that telephone booth. <laughs> through all that space travel and time travel. Well, it, it, it's the TARDIS that does wonderful things. Mm-hmm. I can't remember. Yeah, well, seeing you're seeing, I'm not as big. TARDIS stood for something. Um, I can't remember that. But I have I'm this, going to look it up. Let's say I have this thing in front of me called the Internet. And a lot of our listeners are probably going, we don't give a dang. <laughs> or time so it, 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 that's exactly what I thought. It relates to the way it, it travels, time and relative dimensions in space. Sorry, I, I went somewhere else. I'm podcast I'm beginning to produce. I'm thinking there could be a twist on that for the name of that podcast. But Look at that. <laughs> no TARDIS gloves. Coming soon. <laughs> time and relative dimensions in the automotive. Well. I think we've bored them enough. Yeah, I know. We're, we're here sitting, you know, we've exited cars, and now we're talking about police call boxes, time traveling. Well, I mean, it's all relative because, you know, space travel is more in-depth space travel is coming. There's already a Tesla out in space driving around. Yep. So, you know, this is all relative. With the book, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy in the glove box. So long as they gave him a towel, we should be good. You know, actually, the question, I guess the question is, I, I read, I think, just this evening that NASA picked up a radio signal from deeper in space than they ever have um, in the last week or so. Uh, anybody checked how far that Tesla has gotten out into space and if the radio signal is coming back? Uh, I was hearing that Tesla was actually in pretty rough shape in space, but... No, Mm. Uh, but this is no driving gloves and it's a transportation podcast, but 
unfortunately, a lot of times when we get out there, we start talking about Teslas. So, <laughs> and I was going to start talking about rockets, but guess what? That's Musk too. So, because you know, I think that's why Jeff's retiring so as he can help catch up with uh, um, good old Elon and in, in, in the uh, Amazon Tesla space race. There, I think yeah, we'll we'll go ahead and call call this one good because we're we're literally out there. And I could go on because of some of the stuff I've heard on Mike Rowe lately in that about the Hubble Space oh Telescope and photographs and time I travel. Just, and I've I got one kicking around in my head that I got to get out, though, John. <laughs> you just talked about Amazon and space. And I got to believe if anybody out there watched Mystery Science Theater 3000, MST3K, as, as we called it, uh, I'm pretty sure there had to have been one where they riffed a, a B-movie called Amazon amazonians in space or something like that i right? honestly I mean, believe they did i <laughs> guess uh, i actually watched it when it was mystery science theater 3000 we weren't you know when i was young we didn't use acronyms but let's see here mst well, i watched it as both i watched it as mystery science theater 3000 and of course they changed it to mst3k yeah. i've also been and and seen one of the live shows and let me tell you what those are awesome but I'm pretty sure there was one that was like Amazons and Amazonians and something like that. The Amazons in space. Man, uh, Manhunt in space. Prince of space. Space mutiny. I don't see the Amazon one. Stranded in space. Teenagers from outer space. It's, uh, well, at least it, it at least sounds like something that could be on Mystery Science Theater 3000. And if it happens... If it happens, I want them to riff it. <laughs> well, there's a. Uh, wonder why nobody's doing that with um, YouTube videos. Maybe they are. I don't search for that on YouTube. I, I think it's. I think it's called Tosh Point isn't it? Doesn't isn't that what Daniel Tosh does? Uh, Tosh just rips on um, YouTube videos. YouTube I'm videos. talking somebody do the YouTube state channel like mst3k because oh you know, do it actually just I'll, like i'll MST. be honest okay. my dad and i used to sit around especially my dad when you know i was you know knee high to his grasshopper as they would say and he would do make the jokes and the stupid things and i do that when i'm watching tv with um zara and zara yells at me all the time and i have to suspend reality when i'm watching tv and i don't do that very well you know yeah, reality yeah, used to be a too. friend of mine, but I still live in reality. So <laughs> let's call this one good. Let's hope we still have some listeners that I can say go to the website, nodrivinggloves.com, take the survey, $25 Amazon gift card. This is through the end of March 2021 that it's available. Um, we've got some feedback because uh, we're late with this week's episode that we're recording now, and the episode that was supposed to come out yesterday still is not out. Um, we're already violating some of our suggestions, but this is no driving gloves. We do it our way. Um, if you uh, if you really want it weekly, buy us a few coffees and we'll listen to you. <laughs> Ouch! No, no offense to those that have pushed for it weekly. We're we're really working on getting that schedule. And as soon as I get this get through this three weeks, I will have a life back, and I will have. Uh, a schedule that I can I can abide by. Promises. Unless, of course, I get a CRX I have to put back together. But with that, Derek's been great chatting with you tonight. 
been great having you guys listen tonight. NoDrivingGloves.com. Talk to you later. See you guys later.